Chapter 2. Adventure Comes to Meet Us We could hear the cry of seabirds and the pounding of the surf upon the perpendicular cliffs. The cries fell upon our ears like the ghostly wail of some far-off locomotive whistle heard at night. Such sounds produce a strange, nostalgic effect upon the human spirit that no words describe. We could see nothing. An eerie, two-dimensional world of sound and fog bounded our horizon. For ten days we had been on this small island, one of the Coronados group, about ten miles south of San Diego. We had planned to make the islands our first stopover on Mexican soil, though we had not intended to roost here indefinitely. The Coronados are volcanic rocks without resources of any kind. An occasional lobster fisherman, their only visitor, the islands remain the unmolested property of the seabirds, which nest upon their rocky ledges. We had arrived here the day following our inglorious landing on the sand spit. It was to be the jumping-off place for Ensenada, 60 miles due south. The two weeks' food supply with which we had left San Diego seemed ample until we reached the Mexican mainland, for it was to be supplemented by the fish that abounded in these waters. That is, the fish abounded theoretically. When we tried to catch them, they became coy and elusive. Besides, we were in no fishing mood. To the front and the rear of us, our fears volleyed and thundered. Fear of ridicule if we turned back, and in front of us, hmm? We were just plain scared. The trip had seemed so feasible and so romantic back in Santa Ana, but on the Coronados it was somehow different. Fortunately, our premonitions of danger were vague and ill-defined. We had no hint of the precise nature of the events ahead, and it was just as well. For it is time enough when the situation demands all one's physical and mental resources to meet it. So we just sat, part of the time hemmed in by fog. But when the days were clear and we could have left, we wrote in our log anyway, unable to leave because of fog. The Coronados were in no way inspiring to amateur adventurers. As I said, we were in no mood to fish, so when we discovered lobster traps belonging to some absentee owner, we just moved in and helped ourselves. Six fat, succulent lobsters had fallen before our hardy appetites when the owner of the trap was in sight. How are you fixed for water? he greeted us. Our canteens were nearly empty and he promptly filled them. And how would you like some lobsters? He insisted over our protests on leaving six. We were both red to the ears with shame and embarrassment. A pretty pass we'd come to, raiding other people's lobster pots. Galvanized into life by our collective guilty conscience, we began diving and soon wrenched twelve astonished lobsters from their hiding places underneath the rocks. These we placed in the generous fishermen's traps, 
hoping that his pleasure in finding such a catch on his next visit would equal ours when we discovered his traps. The next day we got our nerve back and paddled away from the Coronados, bound for Ensenada. The weather looked right, and though there was not enough wind for sailing at the outset, we anticipated breezes that would enable us to sail part of the way and bring us into Todos Santos Bay sometime within the next 24 hours. A few miles out from the islands, we met a fishing boat bound for the mainland and asked the crew to report us en route to Ensenada with the approximate time of our arrival. The vagabunda's prow shot skyward over the back of a giant wave. White froth raced down the canvas deck and spurted over the gunwale. Where are we? Ginger stopped bailing long enough to make herself heard above the scream of the wind. The boat plunged through the crest and skidded down into the trough. Tons of water smashed against the thin mahogany hull of our cocky 16-footer. I didn't answer, for I didn't know. It was anybody's guess. The tiny needle of the compass strapped to my wrist was whirling about with no regard for the magnetic north. We were possibly 50, maybe 60 or 100 miles off the coast of Baja, California, and with a nor'easter on our tail. All day we had paddled under a brassy sky with no breath of wind stirring. Then suddenly, out of nowhere, sometime after nightfall, the storm had struck us. For ten hours, the vagabunda had been pulling herself out from under the cascades that boiled over her stern. A miracle, but she was still together. When the vagabunda wallowed in the troughs, Ginger would bail madly while a mountain of furious water rushed down on us from behind. Then, as the wind caught the close-reefed sail and slammed us into the wave ahead, Ginger gripped the gunwale for dear life. The wind's easing. Ginger, the incurable optimist, pointed to the sail. It was true, the wind was losing some of its fury. During the next hour, only an occasional gust of wind bore down on our craft with sufficient force to test the vagabunda's seaworthiness, and a few hours later she was riding cumbersome swells with only the chop-chop of a mildly roughed sea slapping her sides. Had enough? I asked. This was my way of reminding Ginger that she was at least partly responsible for this hair-brained adventure. It would also forestall any complaint that her hair hung in pasty strings or that her thin clothing was plastered coldly against her slender body. But she did not answer. Ginger and I had grown up together. Not so many years before this day, she was the little pigtailed pest who tried to muscle in on anything we fellows planned round the open fire on winter evenings. Soon she became 
the tomboy whose dirty fingers smudged the map of Cocos Island that hung in my den. She was the young Amazon, as burnt and as sooty as the rest of us, whom I found on the fire line after the smoke of four hundred acres of burnt-over California watershed had cleared away. It used to make me mad, too. For when there was some hazardous and purely masculine excitement afoot, such as chasing a fire truck, you could bet your last nickel that Virginia Bishop would somehow get wind of it and probably be at the scene of action when you arrived. These things were vexing to the young male ego. Then one day, when she thought she was safe from interference, she undertook to ride a wild-eyed bronco, gray wolf, that I owned. I had expressly forbidden her to go near the horse, for he was dangerous. I got there just in time to pull her out from beneath his hoofs. But in that split second, when I heard his maddened squealing and knew without question who it was he was attempting to kill, Ginger ceased to be the girl who lived next door. And so we were married. It had been her suggestion in the first place that we take this canoe trip. We had built the Vagabunda together, had spent weeks modeling the mud form over which we laid the keel and bent the ribs, while old salts and helpful friends looked on and made suggestions. Our canoe, when finished, weighed 150 pounds, had a 42-inch beam and a depth of 24 inches. She carried a 14-foot mast and, with the jib, had a 100 square feet of sail. With the exception of a cockpit scarcely big enough for the two of us, she was decked over. Into her construction we had put everything we knew, or could find out about a sailboat, a surfboat, a canoe, and a kayak. She was a sweet little ship, and with dreams of the open sea and adventure, we christened her the Vagabunda. We could have picked no better name for a vagabond. She surely was to the end of her life. We started on our equipment as soon as she was finished. Since none of the outfitting companies could supply us with the type of equipment we thought necessary, we made our own. This was a problem that took considerable thought. The Vagabunda had a capacity of not more than 500 pounds. Ginger and I, plus the sails, paddles, and lines, weighed 350 pounds. That meant that we could carry only 150 pounds of other gear including food and clothing. The equipment offered for sale was entirely too cumbersome. The lightest tent with a canvas floor that we could buy weighed eight pounds. Our homemade insect-proof tent weighed four. Four pounds less tent to carry enabled us to carry four pounds of something else equally essential. The tent, sleeping bag, compact mess kit, and other gear were of our own manufacture. Into two strong, light, waterproof boxes, we stowed our food, guns, camera, films, 
first aid kit, diaries, fishing gear, and repair outfit, together with the tent, sleeping bag, and mess kit. Oh yes, and our cash resources as well. $4.20, carefully wrapped in a bit of oilskin. So here we were, the three of us, somewhere off the coast of Baja, California, and still going strong. I made the entry in the day's log. October 22nd, position unknown. Northeaster struck us last night, and we had to run before it. This morning we are becalmed in a fog. Three gallons of water in canteens. Provisions for two more days. I put the log away in its waterproof box and settled down to keep watch. Dan! Dan! Ginger was shaking me. Evidently I had dozed off. There's a ship out there. We could barely hear the muffled drumming of a powerful engine. A narrow gray bow crept stealthily out of the fog. I grabbed for the steering paddle. Ginger cupped her hands and was about to hail them when something in the craft's strange outlines made me hesitate. Hold it, I commanded. But, Dan, she'll get away. We ought to at least find out our position. Perhaps they'll even take us in to shore. The outlines of the strange craft were becoming well-defined. Long, low, and rakish. Every line indicated that she was built for speed. She was perhaps a hundred and eighty feet in length, and her hull was painted gray. But in spite of her color and general appearance, we knew that she was not a United States Navy vessel, for she carried no identifying numerals upon her bow. Then I had an awful hunch. Somewhere off this coast, the notorious fleet of rum runners that supplied contraband liquor to nominally bone-dry America had its anchorage. It was no place for Ginger. We heard a voice shout. The mysterious boat cut her engines. A figure dimmed by the haze appeared at the rail. He stood there looking at us for several minutes. Then, quite distinctly, we heard him. Hell's bells, it's a canoe, other figures joined him. Give me those glasses, a voice commanded. There was a moment of silence, then, I'll be damned, there's a woman in it. This was followed by an explosion of profanity. A woman, a woman, the way they kept repeating that one word sent a chill of apprehensions up my spine. Ginger turned towards me, her face chalk white. Get out the guns, I said. I eased the boat round. With every ounce of strength, I began a chop stroke with the paddle. My hope to lose ourselves in the fog. Hi, you! A voice like the bull of Bashan hailed us from the deck. The big gray vessel glided towards us with maddening ease. Ginger, meanwhile, had slipped open the zipper that held the canvas well of the cockpit in place and protected the dunnage beneath the deck from water. I reached out for the luger and the extra clips of ammunition. She held her twenty-two automatic in her lap. Come about there, the voice from the boat ordered, and you might be telling me what you're up to. This is the canoe Vagabunda, I replied. We're en route from San Diego to Ensenada. There was a chorus of shouts, quickly stopped by the man with the binoculars. 
Bound for Ensenada, are you? he asked incredulously. Then you'd better turn about. You're heading for China. We would be obliged, I answered, if you will report us safe when you make port. There was the sound of hearty laughter at this. The boat was now close enough so that we could get a good look at its crew. Four were clean-cut young fellows, but the fifth was a large, hairy-armed brute in hip boots, wearing a slicker with the sleeves rolled back. He looked like nothing so much as Jack London's sea wolf. There was the rattle of glass. A window in the pilot house opened, and a young blonde head popped out. I say there, he shouted, before you start for Mexico, you'd best come aboard for a cup of tea. We waited expectantly for the cries of derision, which should have greeted this remark, but the men on deck regarded us soberly. Thanks, I replied, but if you'll give us our position, we'll be on our way. You'd best reconsider our invitation, the blonde-headed pilot insisted. As for your position, you're nearer Davy Jones' locker than any other place I know of. Furthermore, if you have any sense left, you'll come aboard before we come and get you. We knew he meant it. Ginger turned to me and said quietly, Since we can't get away, we'll have to take a chance. Let's go. Without more ado, we shoved our sidearms into our belts, pulled our sweaters down over the gun butts, and swung alongside the stern of the other boat. Our blonde-headed host was there to meet us, his boat so close to the water that he only needed to extend his hand in order to help us scramble aboard. Sketch map showing the voyage of the Vagabunda from San Diego to Cedros Island. Lower California, Gulf of Lower California. I'm Captain Budge, he said. I introduced Ginger and myself. A few minutes later, the crew had the Vagabunda dragged on deck. Now, if you'll follow me, we'll do our best to warm you and your lady up a bit, he said. Then he turned to the crew who stood by, staring. Proceed at four knots and keep a sharp lookout. As the craft got underway, we marched along the steel deck and past the pilot house through a very small hatch and down a steep stairway into a small triangular galley jammed in the bow. The quarters were cramped but spotlessly clean. We sat down on opposite bunks that served as benches during the day. The captain busied himself among the tea things. "'You Americans prefer milk and sugar in your tea, do you not?' he said in his pleasant English voice. "'We'll take it any way, just so it's hot,' Ginger answered. "'Now tell me,' said Budge, as we settled back, "'just what in hell you think you're doing out in the middle of the Pacific in that cockle shell?' "'Why, er, uh, we're going to Panama,' I said, somewhat taken aback. "'You're going where?' he demanded. I repeated." "'In that funny little boat?' I nodded. The foghorn was blowing incessantly, and the sound seemed to irritate him. He kept looking towards the hatch. "'Pardon me,' he said finally, and started towards the stairway. "'If they don't stop that damned racket, they'll have every damned cutter in the Pacific on our necks.' After he'd gone, we looked at each other. "'Well, what have we gotten ourselves into now? Something ought to be done. What? Will he put us ashore?' Budge returned. "'Captain, will you put us ashore at Ensenada?' I asked. "'And by the way, what's the name of your boat?' He looked at me oddly for a moment. "'Oh, yes, this is the Tahio, out of Vancouver,' he answered. "'But we haven't been home for some time. 
The Ta Yo was the most notorious rum runner on the Pacific coast. He turned abruptly to Ginger. Can you cook? A little bit. Why? Do you suppose while we're taking you in to shore that you could bake a chocolate cake? Ginger smiled rather dubiously. You see, we've been on this craft for over six months, and we haven't tasted a chocolate cake for all that time, he explained. This was too much for Ginger. Somehow the two didn't fit together. Rum runners, chocolate cake, she said in a dazed, wondering voice. Rum runners are not, said the captain. We still want a chocolate cake. It would have been no greater shock to have learnt that Captain Kidd's favorite tipple was malted milk. Vanilla flavor, please. Ginger started hunting round the galley for the makings. Budge started up on deck. I followed with the idea of keeping an eye on the sea wolf. While on deck, looking over the lashings that the crew had put on the vagabunda, I saw the sea wolf, who answered to the name of Big Bill, start towards the bow. He was headed for the galley, and Ginger was there, alone. I hunched my gun into a handier position and started after him. His great hulk disappeared down the tiny hatchway, and then bedlam broke loose. The smashing of dishes mingled with the piercing screams of Ginger. I ran to the hatch with my gun drawn and looked down, and there was Bill, sitting on the floor with a blanket draped over his head. He had slipped going down the steep ladder, and reaching out for something to prevent his fall, had grabbed a blanket that hung over one of the upper bunks. His huge feet skidding out across the floor had knocked the table loose from its moorings. There he sat in the midst of ruin, frantically pawing at the blanket. Ginger, who had taken refuge on the flower bin, seemed unable to make up her mind whether she was frightened or amused. As Bill emerged from under the blanket, he grinned sheepishly and said, "'Excuse me, but can I lick the frostin' bowl?' So this was the menace to my domestic peace. Here I was prepared to rescue a lady in distress, and, hell, I put away the luger, feeling foolish. Sea-wolf, indeed. I needed to curb my imagination. After the crew had polished off the last crumb of Ginger's cake, Budge called us both up to the pilot house. I've changed my mind about taking you to Ensenada. You're shanghaied, he said roughly. But, Captain, you promised, I protested. All my fears came back. I've changed my mind, he said sternly. Ginger, your job is to bake a chocolate cake for every meal. Dan, your production superintendent. Then he grinned. No joking. How would you like to spend a week with us ditching cutters? If you're out for adventure, here is your chance. But, of course, it's dangerous. Ginger and I nudged each other. This was right up our alley. Our impression of rum runners underwent an immediate change. As a matter of fact, these men were not the roughnecks and hoodlums that the average person believed them to be. They were mostly ex-Navy men picked for their intelligence and ability to outwit the men aboard the United States Revenue Cutters. Their job was to pick up a load of liquor at Rum Row, a fleet of freighters anchored well out to sea off the Mexican coast, and then to carry this load up the coast and deliver it to the shore boats who handled it from there on. The revenue cutters could not touch the mother ships, which were on the high seas, well beyond the jurisdiction of the United States, nor could they prevent the shuttle boats, such as the Ta Yo, from contacting them, as long as they kept out of American territorial waters, 
for most of the boats engaged in the business were of foreign registry. But the cutters could, and sometimes did, capture the shuttle boats if they were found within the twelve-mile limit. On our first run north, we were cutterized by a six-bitter. To be cutterized means that a revenue cutter has attached itself to the shuttle boat to prevent it from contacting the shore boat. The rum runners catalog the cutters as two bitters, which are the old type sub-chaser, four bitters, the new type revenue cutters, and six bitters, captured and converted high-speed rum runners. And being cutterized by a six-bitter was something to challenge the resource of these rum-running crews. We tried all the regular methods of ditching the cutter, but she was too speedy. Finally, about eleven o'clock that night, we shut down our engines and put out all the lights except the small riding light on the very short mast. The weather was hazy, and it looked as though there might be a heavy fog before morning. The cutter wasn't taking any chances on our remaining put. However, she began circling us in a wide orbit, keeping her engines turning over so she could get under way in a hurry if we should decide to run for it. It was I was in the pilot house with Budge, showing him how to make a leather holster for his f- sidearm, when Big Bill came in. How would you like to take a look at the engine room? Fine, I said, and followed him aft. I had been in lots of engine rooms in my time, but this was the cleanest and most efficient one that I had ever seen. A 1,200-horsepower diesel engine stood in the center, her bright work sparkling in the light. On each side of this great engine, Liberty airplane motors were set in tandem. The boat had three propellers. Dan, I've got a new idea, said Bill. It's fishing, fishing for suckers, he grinned. Want to lend a hand? I nodded. He took down a long bamboo fishing pole and sent me off to get Budge's flashlight. When I returned with the flashlight, he removed its bulb and fastened it to the end of the fishing pole. Then we ran wires from the bulb down to the end of the pole, where we connected them to the flashlight batteries. A small switch in the middle of the pole completed the arrangements. I was completely puzzled as to what he meant to do with the contraption. Suckers? Then Bill went round the room collecting pipe fittings and weights. He cut a small hole in the top of a thirty-gallon oil drum, through which he dropped the weights. Together, we wrestled the big drum on deck. Bill took the fish pole, stuck it through the small opening in the drum, and lashed it securely into place. In response to my questions, all he would say was, Wait. Off through the haze, we could see the cutter, still circling warily. Bill left me and went forward. When he came back with the crew, we lifted the strange contraption into the water. We waited in silence, watching the cutter, until she came astern of us. When I give the signal, snap the switch, Bill whispered. I leaned over the side. He raised his arm. At that precise moment, the masthead light went out. On the fish pole's tip, the tiny flashlight bulb glowed. The Ta Yo's decks began to vibrate as the big diesel turned over. In the pilot house, Ginger was steering the craft as we guided off into the night, 
leaving the revenue cutter going round and round our dummy masthead light. Hang on, everybody, we're off, and we're late. Budge stepped to the engine room telegraph and shoved all three indicators, full speed ahead. The Ta-Yo shuddered and settled low in the water then. Enveloped in spray, she raced through the night, taking us to some unknown destination. A week later, we cautiously steamed in towards Todos Santos Bay and Ensenada. Budge paid not the slightest attention to our suggestion that we be left off on the high seas, but steamed impudently right into the harbor. Soon the vagabunda was over the side, and we were paddling away toward shore. Not even then did the Ta-Yo leave. She circled round us twice, tooting her whistle and ringing her bell, while the crew waved goodbyes. This was too much for a revenue cutter standing by in the harbor, and it promptly gave chase, only to have the elusive Ta-Yo take to her heels and quickly disappear seaward in a cloud of foam. When we sailed into Ensenada and presented our papers, we had plenty of explaining to do. The fishing boat had reported us as en route to Ensenada, and when we failed to arrive, we were given up as lost at sea. The very cutters that the Ta-Yo had been playing tag with had been searching for the wreckage of our canoe. After this ordeal was over, we started out to face the desert coast of Baja California.